today's episode is on clinical reasoning. I think it's really important to be aware of how you think. It doesn't matter how smart you are or what you know, medicine is uncertain and we'll all get it wrong from time to time. So it's important to reflect and think about how we think and be aware of some of the biases that influence how we draw our conclusions. An excellent podcast dedicated to this topic called I Am Reasoning is hosted by two Auckland Hospital physicians and they were kind enough to join me for this episode. I went to the I Am Reasoning studio at Auckland Hospital to record and in an amusing example of human error, three experienced podcasters recorded an entire episode without one of the microphones being turned on. Had we performed a simple checklist like the World Health Organization's surgical timeout, we could have avoided this critical error. Additionally, if we had a podcasting house officer, perhaps they would have spoken out about us bypassing the recording check. Thankfully, it was my microphone that was off, so I've re-recorded my questions. But apologies in advance for the awkward dynamic. Introducing the hosts of I Am Reasoning, Drs. Art Nahal and Nick Sheckett. Thanks for joining me on the show. It's a pleasure. Uh, what do you think of the studio, by the way? It's an honor to be here. <laughs> <laughs> this is just, just our office. It's got three microphone stands. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, that's, that's for the aesthetics. Shall we just start with you telling us about your podcast, I Am Reasoning, as an in internal medicine reasoning? Well, the podcast started off actually as a curriculum for year six students. We realized that it seemed to us anyway that there was a, a gap in the education that they'd had around developing clinical reasoning skills, uh, developing differential diagnoses and the like. And so we tried to come up with an idea that would make the curriculum accessible to various students in different locations. And it turned out that that curriculum wasn't used, but we had a podcast that was launched and uh, the sort of the momentum took off from there. Early on in I Am Reasoning, you talked about cognitive biases. Can you tell us about some of the more common cognitive biases and especially those ones most relevant to a first-year house officer practicing alone on the wards? Sure. So I think the, the most common cognitive biases that affect everyone, not just house officers on the ward, are the main ones like confirmation bias, uh, anchoring, uh, premature closure. Yeah, I, there are so many different biases, but I think Nick has main, mentioned the, the main ones. There's affective bias, which is where we perhaps think a little bit differently and react a little bit differently to histories we might get from people who are um, drug users or obese or have chronic pain, etc. Um, all of those, all of those biases are really important. I should say though that it's important to also realize that it's unclear whether or not knowing about biases actually helps us avoid them. Everybody has differing opinions on this, and there's certainly no data to suggest that it does. But I think intuitively it makes sense that if you don't know about them, there's absolutely zero chance that you'll be able to avoid them. If you do know about these biases, there is a small but probably real likelihood that you can avoid them if you engage in, in the, the right kind of system two engagement. And we've talked about this tension before, and one of the conclusions that we reached, and I quite like thinking about it this way, is because these are biases, these are patterns and heuristics that we naturally fall into, the 
argument against them being useful is that you, you just wouldn't know when you're in the middle of them. Uh, but you can pick them out in your colleagues. And so if you, if you have a collaborative environment where there's some safety around commenting on what your colleagues are doing and pointing out uh, feedback to your colleagues, you can identify what biases they might be falling prey to and, uh, and point them out to them. I suppose there is then a risk of being aware of a bias and overcompensating for it. Sure, because there's, there's biases on both sides. You know, one example is, uh, and I think most people will be familiar with, Occam's razor versus Hickam's dictum. So if you happen to be, I mean, I think Occam's razor probably operates more often, and we like to think that it operates more often than Hickam's dictum, which is the, the opposite side. But depending on what frame of mind you're in, you could be biased to try and tie everything in together to one diagnosis. Or if you're thinking on the other side, you could be biased into uh, trying to think of different diseases for uh, different symptoms. And either one is not the right answer. It's not the right way to go. One I certainly see often or am acutely aware of is the gambler's fallacy. Uh, that's where there's a belief of self-correcting chance that if you've seen a rare diagnosis recently or just before the next patient with a similar presenter complaint, it can't possibly be that rare diagnosis again. I still have a very clear memory of a ward call evening of chest pain after chest pain after chest pain uh, and trying to differentiate who's having a uh, myocardial infarction and who isn't. And it just seemed like, well, I'd already seen you know, more than I would usually had ever seen in a day before. So can the next one possibly actually be one? Uh, and I think that really made it difficult to try and differentiate objectively uh, who needs further investigation and who didn't. I think it's a, that's a really important one to keep in mind in that each episode that you see is independent of the other. And so just like flipping a coin, even though it flip comes six times heads, it doesn't mean that that seventh time is guaranteed to come tails. It's an independent event. The, the related bias to that is what's called posterior probability bias. And so if you're seeing Mr. Jones, who's been admitted eight times for alcoholic pancreatitis, and he comes in with epigastric slash abdominal pain, you have to catch yourself because it, there's no guarantee that that next time he comes in, because he's come in all the previous times with alcoholic pancreatitis, that this time it's going to be alcoholic pancreatitis as well. Do you have any real-world advice on how to reduce the impact of cognitive biases, especially if just knowing about them isn't enough? Well, I think the way to try to minimize the impact of biases or heuristics is to engage in mindful practice. And by that, I mean employing a, a very brief little cognitive checklist that you can use, you can pull out at any point in time, it won't take you a long time, uh, and employ it for every patient that you see, particularly if you're working alone and you're not that experienced yet. One of the things that I always ask myself, I have a, a series of questions, is I always ask myself, even if it seems like a slam dunk diagnosis, particularly if it seems like a slam dunk diagnosis, what else could it be? And I force myself to come up with at least a couple of other things that it could be, even if it's a, a lowly cellulitis that you see a thousand times. I always ask myself, what else could it be? What's the worst thing it could be? What doesn't fit with cellulitis? 
and I always am aware of sort of the red flags in my thinking. So if it's late and I'm, I'm 10 minutes from finishing my shift or I'm you know, leaving for Fiji tomorrow and I just want to get the hell out of the hospital or if it's a patient that I know pushes my buttons as an alcoholic patient or an obese patient with chronic pain, I always say, okay, I've got to slow down here and I've got to think a little bit differently about this patient than I would otherwise. So having a small little quick cognitive checklist I think is the best defense. A common occurrence when you're first starting out is to have a lot of self-doubt and also have a lot more faith in your seniors. It often seems like they just go straight to a diagnosis and that they've probably gone through their head systematically and ruled out everything else less likely. And the thing that you're maybe thinking of or don't want to miss, you might assume has been considered and ruled out already. I'd like to highlight that the team can sometimes be led astray, uh, sometimes by maybe a group mentality that because you've got all these minds in the room, that you're all collectively going down the right track. I've been in situations like this where we've all completely missed the boat, and I'd like to think that if somebody did have an idea in the room that we'd all missed, that that would have been brought up. Do you have any comments on the group mentality and how, as a house officer, you might have a positive impact on the problems associated with it? Well, I mean, I'll start off by saying that there's no guarantee that any senior doctor gets the diagnosis right. And that's regardless of how they practice. You know, it doesn't, you don't have to be a shoot from the hip, you know, type one intuition, you know, diagnostician in order to get it wrong. You can get it wrong after thinking about it extremely carefully. So, there's always room for questioning. If a question comes up in whomever on the team, even if it's the most junior clinician on the team, I think it's a question worth, worth asking. I would never assume that our senior clinicians are systematically ruling out other diagnoses. I think, in fact, the more experienced you become, the less likely you are to feel like you need to think about things systematically because you are good at pattern recognition, you've seen things many times before, you're much more likely to make quick decisions. And the truth is, they're good decisions most of the time and they're right most of the time. It's important to realize as well that diagnostic errors don't distinguish good doctors from bad doctors. That even clinicians that you look up to that you think are really excellent physicians, they will make errors. There's no question about it. So you're not casting aspersions on their abilities or their intellect by questioning their judgment. And it's unfortunate. Sometimes we take it personally, but we shouldn't take it personally because we need to get over that idea that just because somebody is an experienced clinician that they are quote-unquote right. There's a tremendous amount of diagnostic momentum, which I think is what you just described, where once a diagnosis is latched onto, it becomes this momentum-carrying entity that just goes forward and can roll people over if they don't actually step aside and say, hey, wait a minute, uh, why couldn't it be this? Certainly, there are respectful and less respectful ways to do that, but I think it's an important question to ask. If you have doubt, it's important that you, that you voice it. I'm going to move on to documentation. What should a well-documented impression and differential diagnosis look like? Hmm. I like this question. So, yeah, I mean, I think there probably is no right, absolute right way 
to write a note or to to document. But one major tenant that I think is worth mentioning is the note from a specialist service or any anyone who's providing an opinion on on a patient's case is meant to reflect what's going on inside the head or the the, the thinking of that clinician. It's meant to deliver the opinion and the justifications for that opinion so that other people, when they read that note or when you yourself go back and read your own note, you can be reminded of your logic. It's good for patient communication as well. I mean, if you write your note the way that you would explain to the patient exactly what, why you're thinking what you're thinking, that's probably the best kind of note as well. So I would say, major tenant to remember, write down what's in your thinking, not what happened in the room. So not just a chronological recapitulation of what happened in the room, but rather what's going on in your brain, in your thinking. So that's one major tenant. The way that I write my impressions is issues-based. And so it's a problem-oriented impression. So any issue or problem that we are addressing, uh, I will tackle individually. And I will tackle it from A to Z within that issue. And then I'll move on to the next issue. And most of that note, most of that tackling of that issue needs to include what I was thinking and why I was thinking that. So justify my impressions. And I often write differential diagnoses right in my notes. You know, sometimes because we don't get to write a lot of our notes, we you know we we have our juniors write them as we work, and it is efficient, uh, you know. But sometimes I'll find myself we step out of the room. I say, okay, here's what I think, and I'll start going through the differential diagnosis and my justifications for thinking it might be that or less likely or more likely one thing or the other. And the junior is just staring at me with the pen at the ready, ready to go, but not writing anything down. And I have to actually stop sometimes and say, no, no, actually, I, I think this is important to write down. Why don't you write down, try and capture what it is that I'm saying, including the differential diagnosis, the different items, and the justification for each. It's just not done. It's not the thing that we're taught in medical school. We don't see anybody else do it. But I do agree, it's a really important thing to get your thinking down on paper. It's not unusual to find, for example, an admission to discharge planner that is just chock full of information about history, physical exam, even if that physical exam has been done by the emergency department or some other uh, individual. We repeat all of that work, and then under the impression there may be two or three lines, and it may be as simple as collapse, query, cause, and then you'll see plan. And uh, that makes me actually go apoplectic when I when I see that because you've done all that work, and the most important part of the note is that reflection, that that breaking down of the problem into smaller problems. So I completely agree with what Nick said, and this is this is sort of a uh, you know, we can trace it all the way back to an individual named Larry Weed back in the '70s who first proposed a problem-based uh, medical record. I will put the problem, and I will say it, and I will put that problem down at the degree of certainty that I have at the time. So if all I know is that it's shortness of breath that they've presented with, well, then that will be my problem. It won't be a diagnosis that I have inferred. It will be shortness of breath, 
and then my working diagnosis will come next, and then my differential diagnosis with an explanation of why I think it's X versus Y versus Z. And I do that for each separate problem. But we front load the, the notes with all this probably irrelevant or at least repetitive information, and we shortchange the note at the business end, which is where we get to reflect our thinking. And if I could expand a little bit more on that problem-oriented approach, some listeners might be wondering, well, not, not all problems need to be, need a differential diagnosis. I mean, sometimes we already know what the diagnosis is. It's a management problem, and that also needs to be in that impression. So when you identify a problem that you're addressing, the first question is, is this a diagnostic problem? So if someone has presented with an undifferentiated symptom and you don't know what the cause of that symptom is, that is a diagnostic problem, and that is what we have been talking about so far. But you might have another problem. I mean, the, you know, the most common problem that we have to address is discharge planning or disposition or mobility or however you want to state that problem. It's not a diagnostic problem. It's a management problem, and there's different components and aspects to how to manage that problem. So you can identify all the problems. There may be multiple of them. Only some of them might be diagnostic problems, and that's, those are important to differentiate from the other problems. Although I might argue that even management problems have a differential diagnosis. So for example, if somebody comes in and they've got poorly controlled diabetes, well, that's not a diagnostic issue. You know they have diabetes, you know it's poorly controlled. But there is still a differential as to why perhaps it is poorly controlled. Is it non-adherence to their medications? Is it poor uh, health literacy? Is it cost issues? So I would argue that even management issues, or very often management issues, have their own differential diagnosis as well. And our role isn't only to diagnose and treat, but it's also to identify problems and come up with solutions to those, and that's sometimes the most creative part of the job. So if you identify reasons, like social reasons, socioeconomic reasons, uh, health literacy reasons uh, as to why a patient isn't improving or that are barriers to their recovery. Uh, that's our role is to thrash out ideas on how we can overcome those. Moving on, my next question is, what cognitive aids and resources would you suggest the modern doctor be aware of? Yeah, <laughs> the, the internet, yeah, Dr. Google. <clears throat> I think that's probably the one that most people are, are, are familiar with. Um, there are a couple of uh, medical apps that I, that I use with reasonable regularity. Uh, there's one, and I don't, you know, we don't get any kickback from, from mentioning these, but uh, one is called Isabel, which is a differential diagnosis generator. Uh, where you're allowed to put in sort of demographic information, symptoms, lab values, etc. And it will generate a, a list of things that are helpful only in that you may not have thought of some of those things. So I use that reasonably regularly. There's a similar one that's called uh, Visual DX. Uh, there's Diagnosaurus. So all of those apps allow you to sort of put in information and at least get prompts back as to what might be in the differential diagnosis. Yeah, I just put a plug in. Diagnosaurus, I like in that it, it it's, um, it's not an interactive one. All you're doing is searching for a clinical issue, which it will then spit out a, 
an organized differential diagnosis. So it actually does some of the framework for you already. And it may not be a framework that you are familiar with or even that you like, but it does give it to you in some sort of organized way. Whereas Isabel, although it's more powerful in the sense that you can put in as many symptoms or lab findings or physical exam findings that you want, and it will do a, an algorithmic function with all of those, th that information and spit out a longer list. It's not an organized list, uh, really. Um, and it's, it's, it uses what I would call an or function as opposed to an and function. So it is very inclusive. You can run through the list, make sure that you have considered everything that you need to consider, but it's not, it's not a diagnostic app and it's not as organized. So it's, it doesn't help with learning as much as it helps with reference in the moment to make sure you've thought of everything. And how about off the wards? Do you have any recommendations for podcasts or any other resources? Well, I think, I think tapping into the FOMED community uh, is really, if you're interested in, um, you know, if you're a social media maven and you um, have an interest in that, FOMED is free online um, medical information. So free open access medical education. I wasn't, I wasn't saying the acronym but, uh, explicitly. I was oh, just saying in general oh, what it was. Yeah. So, so that's what it is. If you, you know, if you want to <laughs> show off by knowing what each of the letters means, then by all means, go it's ahead. Just, it's just that it took me about two months to actually get that right. I used to say online as well. So um, FOMED uh, resources are really quite handy. Uh, the RACP uh, has a podcast called Pomegranate. Yeah, there's a couple others. I mean, I think one of the original audio, medical audio podcasts was E.M. Crit, uh, which is a guy called Scott Weingart. I think he's out of Chicago. I can't remember exactly. Um, so American-based. And there's a few other spin-offs. There's a lot of ultrasound uh, podcasts out there. Um, for some reason, the ultrasound, emergency medicine, critical care community has really... They really dominate. Yeah, yeah. They started off this movement. Can you each recount a recent example of a patient seen on a ward call that produced an interesting learning point? Well, this is called availability bias. <laughs> the only thing that I can actually remember is what I can remember. I'm sure there were other interesting ones uh, at some point along the way. But I did see, I was on call the other night, and I got a call from, it was down in uh, the admission and planning unit, a patient that had been recently admitted that day. and. The call was from the nurse, and she was saying that the patient was shaking uncontrollably. And when I got down there, uh, not only were they shaking uncontrollably, but they they were bre their breathing was very fast, and they were they sounded very wheezy. And uh, nurse was extremely concerned. They they actually ended up calling a code red on this patient because of the concern. But all of the patient's numbers were actually, other than the tachycardia, were actually okay. Um, and so, oh, sorry. And the, the quirky thing about the, what the patient was complaining about was excruciating pain in the inner upper thighs, but it was not reproducible when I pressed on it. And the patient had been admitted with fever, but there was no diagnosis at that point from that morning. So they were still searching for a, a reason for his fever. So the conclusion we reached in that moment is the pain was probably referred pain 
from somewhere in the groin. So things like renal stones can can refer pain down into the groin. Uh, urinary or bladder irritation, I guess, can do that as well. We thought about prostatitis. Uh, I think the patient had had a history of orchitis in the past, but that wasn't what was going on now, but that was another consideration. And the urine at that point, it became apparent that the urine was, was positive. So at least we knew that his urine was infected. And then ultimately, because of those symptoms, because he was a man, because it seemed a little bit complicated, we uh, ended up doing an ultrasound. And that showed that he had a partially obstructing stone at the vesiculo-ureteric junction. Um, and so the, the, the overall conclusion in the end was he was having a bacteremic shower from this infection, causing the chills and the rigors. And uh, his breathing was so difficult because it was spasmed breathing from being uh, in rigors, not because he had a lung problem. And that was evidenced by the normal saturations. So it's good to keep your head, you know, when you, when you see something like that, it looks really scary, but actually look at the numbers and saturating okay, blood pressure was okay, etc. And so now, now I know it's a new illness script for me. That's how uh, partially obstructing VUJ stone presents. Well, I think that's got some really useful learning points. One is call for help when you need it. I think even if you don't, if you certainly if you don't know what's going on, even if the vitals are normal, uh, getting some more eyes in the room can be helpful. Uh, and also that as a house officer, especially, you'll be called for all sorts of problems that you've never even heard of. Uh, they won't always be the common calls that we've covered in the show, but there'll be things like pain in the upper groin, which I've never even heard of or seen. Uh, and so you just learn over time. There's a, a case that immediately comes to mind for me that I actually have used um, in teaching cases for fourth year students. It was a patient who was admitted with breathlessness sort of acute on chronic breathlessness, PND and orthopnea. Uh, and he was felt to have congestive heart failure and so was admitted to hospital for diuresis. And for several nights running, uh, he would, house officer was called because the patient would wake up short of breath and they would give another dose of fruzamide. And this patient got lots and lots of fruzamide to the point where his creatinine began to rise. And it was at some point in time when the patient wasn't really responding the way anybody expected them to, they actually thought, well, is there a differential diagnosis for PND and orthopnea? And in fact, the patient had obesity hypoventilation and had pulmonary hypertension that was discovered through the course of an echocardiogram. But one of the learning points that I always try to, to drive home is that if people aren't responding the way you would expect them to for a straightforward diagnosis like congestive heart failure, or if they've already had a good course of antibiotics for presumed community-acquired pneumonia, think of something else. If people are not responding the way you would expect them to, just stop for a moment and think and ask yourself, what else could it be? In our last few minutes, do either of you have any last words of wisdom you can share? One thing I always try to tell the house officers at the beginning of each of their runs is that for the top five to ten things that they see or that they're likely to see in that run, and frequently you can predict what those things are, they should work on some cognitive frameworks. They should work on developing some diagnostic frameworks 
for thinking through the causes of that particular problem. So in general medicine, which is what I'm familiar with, I tell people, look, you should have a way of thinking about chest pain so that when you're called to see the chest pain, you're not scrambling at that moment in time. When you're called to see somebody with shortness of breath, you should have perhaps in a quieter moment thought about the frameworks that you could use to think about shortness of breath. And there are lots of resources out there that can help you do that. Uh, and we talk about it on, on our podcast and have, have quite a bit in the past. So that would be something else that I would suggest to, to, to the house officers as they're beginning each run. In those quiet moments when the pressure isn't on, think about what some of those frameworks are that will help you remember what to think of when the you-know-what hits the fan. Well, thanks once again for joining us on the show. Experts on clinical reasoning, Drs. Art Nahal and Nick Shickett. You're welcome. Our pleasure. I strongly suggest that you check out their podcast, I Am Reasoning, which is linked to in the show notes. Boy, I wish there was somebody who cared about me when I was a, a first-year house officer getting called to the wards not knowing what the hell to do.